welcome to episode 27 of Taco Talks, or a series of live conversations with the people at the forefront of innovation and decentralized finance. Today, the title of the episode is Beyond Bonds, opening up a new world of asset classes on the blockchain. And to discuss this, we have a special guest, Rehan Ahmad, Chief Product Officer and Founding Team Member at MarketNote, um, an SGX and Tomasa Joint Venture on Digital Assets. Uh, within this role, he focuses on uh, product development, digitalization of capital markets products, including bonds, fund infrastructure, and sustainable finance. And as head of fixed income products and digital assets at XGX, Rian oversaw the launch of a digital bond issuance platform that culminated in the market note partnership. Now, Rian was involved in the launch of the new platforms, including SGX's institutional bond trading platform in 2016 and led its general counterparty service uh, 2018 rollout before focusing on digital assets. He's been one of the key SGX representatives on industry bodies, such as ICMA, the fixed trading community, and the Singapore national market. Hi, Seamus. Uh, good afternoon from Singapore. Good morning from Switzerland. Um, listen, great to have you here. I'd love to chat a bit about uh, how, you, how you got into the digital asset space, how that evolution evolved. Sure. So much like many of us in the space, it all started off with a personal interest in crypto uh, that began sometime around 2016, uh, early 2017. But I actually got a lot more interested in the efficiency uh, as a result of smart contracts and ledgers. And there's actually a personal reason why. Uh, one of the first bank, uh, one of the first jobs I had in banking, uh, which is many years ago now, I was actually uh, sent to Japan to service an individual security that took about two weeks to service. Right. So this security had more than nine thousand mortgages underlying, and I was the guy sent to go out there and service it. And back then, obviously, there was no con uh, there was no concept of smart contracts and ledgers to be able to automate asset servicing. We always had that mindset of how do you make um, such a, you know, such an immense amount of data? How do you actually automate and make it more efficient for these kind of assets? So um, obviously, you're quite pragmatic about, uh, you know, being able to support things like crypto in a major global exchange. Uh, I actually started focusing a lot more on what is the underlying technology? Uh, how do you use smart contracts for, you know, really servicing of things that, like bond coupon payments that I was stuck in Japan doing for about two weeks? How do you automate maturity payments? How do you think about automating things like voting in the future? So as we started looking at that, uh, you know, the potential of the, um, of the technology and the application was obvious. Uh, we really wanted to think about where do you use it? Now, as Singapore Exchange, we're quite a unique uh, financial market infrastructure in the sense that uh, we have a listing venue for bonds, uh, we have a lot of Asian uh, and U.S. and LATAM issuers that come and list on us. But we actually also operate a depository in the region uh, that supports, aside from equities, bonds. So for us, uh, bonds, asset servicing is a bread and butter business. And it really began from looking at how can I use this particular technology, uh, which is uh, smart contracts and blockchains, to make life easier for our bond holding clients. That really was the genesis of it. And, uh, you know, we've all been down the rabbit hole, uh, you know, as you, as you start looking at the usage of the technology, uh, different applications become a lot, uh, lot more apparent. Uh, the usage across different asset classes that may not be accessible to you become a lot more apparent. And here we are. Fascinating. I imagine the, there was a dramatic shock when you had to do the asset service in Japan and probably 
the, the advanced features were probably programming the fax machine more than anything, given how that was a <laughs> critical piece of equipment. And Japan probably still is, but, uh, you know, can you, I mean, I, that evolution is pretty clear. Can you talk a bit, you know, how that is, what is market note then? How, what, what eventually was the culmination of that experience and what problem does it solve? Absolutely. So what market note started off in, uh, in 2019 was really an attempt to create, let's call it a digital, i.e. humanless depository, which is at the point in which a bond comes to be custodized with us in our depository how do you automate the settlement? How do you automate the coupons? How do you automate the, the maturity payments? And when we started working on this, uh, it was pretty clear to start we needed partners. And usually within the bond market, uh, you know, you definitely need a larger ranger. You need custodian banks. Uh, you need to be able to have trustees, the investors, and everyone just plugged into the ecosystem to make it work. So very early on, we searched for partners. Some examples I can, I can give here are um, partners like HSBC, Subsequently, we also worked with UOB, which is a Singapore bank on this. And we got the, we managed to understand how the post trade could be fully automated. But as we worked with all of these parties, what became quite clear is that a lot of the data gaps and a lot of the workflow gaps actually lie upstream in the bond issuance process, right? So some stats I can share with you, you know, depending on which bank you speak to and the complexity of the deal. Uh, you know, a typical bond deal can have anywhere from 250 to 600 individual steps that are happening between the banks, the law firms, the trustees, uh, the investor custodians, the bank custodians. And it became very obvious that if we were looking at fixed income as our first asset class, we have to look at the entire value chain versus just looking at uh, post trade, which is what we started off as. So uh, it's a long, uh, it's a long uh, way of saying that MarketNode essentially focuses on end-to-end -end, uh, DLT-enabled infrastructure. Uh, fixed income is definitely our anchor asset class. Over time, we will look to make this a multi-asset infrastructure. And uh, we have what we call an A, B, C, D, and E uh, within our end-to-end. -end. So typically in FinTech, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be aware of the A, B, C, D of FinTech, which is AI, blockchain, cloud, and data. Uh, R-A-B-C-D-E is really A for access mechanisms. We're working on some really interesting products to be able to give issuers the ability to tap traditional capital markets through a digital access mechanism. Our B is our experience working with ledger technologies, blockchain technologies, which we've done over the last two and a half years. Our C is cloud. We realize that uh, the way this market is evolving, you need a faster deployment procedure. So everything you do is on the cloud. Data analytics, we'll cover in detail uh, throughout, this, uh, throughout this webinar for sure. And last but not least is really ESG. And the ESG uh, element is really interesting. Uh, we actually realized that as you're building out a future digital market infrastructure for traditional capital market products, it's something we could not ignore. It's almost turned into this day and age in Europe and Asia and the US into a borderline fiduciary responsibility, right? Being able to show, for example, for green bonds, uh, where is money going? What are the kind of frameworks you're using? What are the kind of projects you can, you can actually invest in? What is the ongoing impact reporting? So again, it's a very ground up approach to ESG. Uh, lately, we come across many fintechs that are overnight ESG experts. Uh, you know, we actually yeah. put them into part of our design process very early on. Fascinating. I mean, you seem, you know, when I look at other market kind of similar market infrastructure, market utilities, they had a very different approach. Right? Let's think about, um, you know, the 
players like ASX or Deutsche Börse or Six, they're really focused on the ledger side of the of the infrastructure equation. Has this? Do you think this has really been helped you not not kind of deciding what that core ledger is and really focusing on the issuance process instead? Does that make the, the the task easier? So here I'll, I'll direct it back to Project Ubin, which is how all of the parties met actually. And uh, as a matter of fact, we got to test out the interoperability between ledgers for trading and trading clearing and settlement as part of Project Ubin. So for us, that was a relatively well-known process. We, as a matter of fact, SGX, uh, our parent company, actually filed a patent on this and has received it. So the mechanics were actually quite familiar to us. And we, for us, for market node, really, we had to try to prove out that there is a commercializable business for this. And when you start thinking in those terms, you start moving away from you know, the concept of a minimum viable product to that of a minimum viable ecosystem, right? Which is your banks, your issuers, your law firms. And for us, we very early on within our digital bond project, we actually did a lot of design study into what the individual pain points were. Right? For someone to be completely upfront with the audience, right? For someone sitting on a DCM desk, you know, right in the coal face, right? <laughs> they really care less about consensus mechanics, <laughs> right? They care more about, you know, am I able to find, you know, the last 10 COVID risk factors for deals done in Asia, right? They're looking for that sort of, uh, they're looking for ESG data. They're trying to understand what the ESG profile of an issuer is. They're trying to gauge customer demand. And frankly, they're quite far removed. And also as someone that, you know, controls the wallet and the spend on this, right? I think you have to look at what, what the business centers actually care about. So yeah, certainly a very different approach uh, from what some of the other financial market infrastructure players have done. We also wanted to focus on fixed income because it's an OTC asset class. Uh, typical you know, bond deals, public bond deals in Asia have 120 to 150 institutional investors. Private placement-like deals have one to three investors. So you've got a smaller universe, right? You're not dealing with you know, major equity IPO that can also have retail participation. So some very natural you know, reasons why we chose to focus on the workflow, why we chose because just because we did a lot of design thinking workshops with our participants and the feedback was loud and clear. Right? So that's some of the thinking around which we built MarketNode. So it's clear what problem you're solving in the near term. What's the longer term mission of MarketNode? Where do you go? Where does this point, what's the end state of this? Yeah. So let's start with, uh, you know, what the, what the current mission and vision is. Um, so in the short term, we want to get fixed income right. And in the longer term, you want to take this concept of getting an end-to-end for one single asset right and then be able to expand it. But let me break down end-to-end and what that means in this context. So when you look at an asset class like fixed income, uh, let's split it into two, which is pre-issuance. So what is the point in time in which an issuer decides to come to the market uh, to raise funding through a new bond? That involves a lot of documentation, that involves a lot of issuer profiling, investor sounding, and basically a lot of work in the, in the front office. And then essentially you have the post-trade through which you're able to settle it more efficiently, through which you're able to do corporate actions more efficiently. So for us, uh, we've since we started MarketNode in the beginning of January, we had an 18-month horizon in which we had to get the fixed income end-to-end right, right? So we had to get certain parts of pre-issuance right and parts of post-trade right. So hopefully that is something we're able to deliver at the market by... Um, 
by middle of next year. As a matter of fact, our first product launch is not too far away. Uh, we will be launching our pre-issuance platform on the 15th of December. And then subsequently, we have phase releases on post-trade. That should put us in a very good position by middle of next year to have delivered on fixed income. Now, whenever you're building out financial market infrastructure, I'm sure your listeners can appreciate, you have to think about making it multi-asset because of the common component tree, yeah. right? So that's where, you know, starting to look at new asset classes that fit this paradigm that, you know, have issues that may or may not be similar to fixed income, but are definitely faced by participants becomes quite important, which is why we've been looking at uh, some of the newer asset classes that I'm sure we'll cover soon. And what, what are those common characteristics? I mean, when you look at other asset classes? Sure. So maybe let's zoom out from asset classes and think about, you know, when you generally look at ledger technology, right? Yeah. What, what are some... What are some of the challenges it's supposed to uh, supposed to solve? Right, generally immutable record keeping. Yes, uh, are you looking for a better way to connect part, uh, data across participants? Absolutely. Are you looking at streamlining things like issuance, money transfers, get away from very traditional batch settlement processes that happen one or two times a day? And there's and last but not least, you know, are you able to create new investable asset classes uh, from something or something that doesn't exist today? So when I look at the broad universe of, um, of, of instruments available, the ones that seem to fit in quite well are things like loans, which would be an extension of fixed income. So if you think about the global loan market, it's split into syndicated loans, and then you have the private loan market, right? And uh, I'll share an anecdote with you um, from someone I met earlier in the week. It, he was telling me about how a secondary loan transfer he once did uh, took him 45 days to settle, right? So in the bond world, we talk about, oh, you know, T plus five is a long time. You know, imagine the person who is um, who's out there trying to do a loan in secondary, right? So, you know, when you think about all of these challenges, what it really comes down to is that you don't have a centralized infrastructure. And that's where I think this kind of technology is very useful for. So for loans, for example, there is uh, no centralized infrastructure for things like bilateral private loans, right? And as a result of that, you actually don't have the ability to create a secondary market out of that, right? That's why your second, and that's why because all the, all the processes are very paper-oriented, this is why it took that banker 45 days to receive his money. Yeah. Then I think when you start looking at uh, things like funds as well, uh, you know, I think for funds really depends on the market you're looking at. Uh, many regional markets globally really have very efficient fund infrastructure, but some don't. And something we definitely see a lot happening in Singapore with is so-called private funds, right? So, you know, large public mutual funds, for example, they have some kind of infrastructure with transfer agents, custodian banks. But when you start looking at private funds, it's a very, you know, lumpy landscape in that way, right? So again, if you have a core infrastructure that's able to tokenize, it's able to settle, it's able to actually create, you know, have data uh, at the depository level, then these sort of asset classes start looking very interesting because then you're not going against an incumbent infrastructure such as the CSDs, right? That's fascinating. I mean, it you know, you identified a lot of, let's say, problem statements around the different asset classes. How does that, how do you look at trade finance? You know, there's a lot of consortiums looking to results, resolve all the, the paper and manual processes and time delays involved in, in trade finance. Is there a role for a market note there as well? 
I would say it's something we've been studying intellectually versus from a product standpoint. Right. And um, the interesting thing about trade finance is you're right, there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of platforms and consortiums that are focused on things like bills of lading, right? And there's many right. good examples in Singapore and globally on there. Uh, that part, uh, you know, is better served by the fintechs. What interests us is how do you look at the technology used in trade finance? So let's take, you know, container logistics as an example, right? Uh, some of the use cases that we're seeing now is really the adoption of sensory technology and, for example, verifiable credentials to be tagged onto container logistics that are then able to, you're able to track their movement. Because you're able to track their movement, you're able to, let's say if you're a bank who's providing trade finance uh, to cover you for you know, the, the receipt of a container, yeah. put it very simply, now you actually have a real-time view of uh, essentially what your funding risk looks like, right? what your credit risk actually looks like. So I think the interesting part for us of trade finance is how this technology is used at scale at a cost-efficient manner, because we see a lot of overlap between that and how the technology could be used for ESG capture in the future, right? So I think that's a few years away, but we started looking at how that could be used because from an ESG data standpoint, uh, I'm sure we'll cover this in a little bit, we have a lot of data because we're a premier, SGX is a premier listing venue for ESG bonds in Asia. And you want to start thinking about, uh, you know, how that gets recorded. How do investors get a better view of all of the work that the issuers are putting into this? So we've really been quite interested in the technology. The second area that, uh, you know, frankly, MarketNode is not looking at, but we see a lot of this happening in the trade finance space, which is how do you turn short-term funding and receivables into actual tradable products? Absolutely. And uh, in that case, for example, it could be an anchor corporate that's really well known right? And a bank is actually providing funding to the anchor corporate that is tied to, for example, payment to a supplier, right? In short, that is just seen by the, uh, it could be seen by an investor as short-term risk to an anchor corporate. How do you turn that into a digital asset that can then be traded in a, in a, across a digital asset venue or a network of digital asset venues? That's some of the, some of the ideas that we're seeing in the trade finance space right now. It seems the, the issue is not so different than aligning settlement cycles with trade cycles, basically, right? Uh, obviously, you have a couple of days in equities, but uh, you know, trade finance could take six months to negotiate a negotiate a contract with a bank. So aligning those would radically change how they get financed and probably increase the velocity a lot. Um, you, know, you touched on the, the ESG data element. I mean, how, how can those properties be? I mean, are, are those properties codified or made more programmable? How, how do you how do you going to put how do you plan to approach that? Sure. Uh, so I think the first problem is actually to define the data set before thinking about how to codify them, right? And right. that is a okay. big task, yeah. right? So uh, if we look at the Asia offshore bond market, uh, we have a number of issuers across different industries, uh, mostly in financials, but then they go across to automotive and technology and real estate. And what we've been trying to do so far is to actually... I don't want to use the word standardized, but actually set a common data set across all of these kinds of issuers. And thanks to some industry bodies in the market, like ICMA, the International Capital Markets Association, they've put in a lot of work into educating, putting out templates or reporting, putting out templates or frameworks. So, you know, I, I got asked the same question earlier this week. My answer is that when it comes to ESG standards, it's a bit like how they talk about the future, right? That it's here, it's just unevenly distributed. 
<laughs> we find the same okay. with the ESG standards. Um, you know, there's no lack of existing standards and industry bodies that are working on this. The challenge is really the issuer awareness and education on how to use it. Now, once the issuer starts using it, we need to actually be able to start to define that common data set before thinking about codifying it, right? Yeah. So here, maybe I'll give you an example, right? You could have an issuer that decides to come to the market and they say, my coupon is 4%. Not that 4% coupons exist anymore. But uh, the issuer could say, my coupon is 4%. And I promise you, the investor, that if my greenhouse gas emissions do not go down by 20% over the next three years, my coupon is going to go up to 5%, right? Interesting. Let's think about how that is actually done today, right? <laughs> by the time you actually report that in five years, there's a lag in the reporting. Right, someone actually has to manually go in and report it. Then someone has to go in and manually actually amend the, um, you know, the coupon from four percent to four and a half or five percent. One use case we can see in the future is for programmable assets through sensory technology. Are you able to, you know, this is a longer longer term play. Are you able to record greenhouse gas emissions on a real time basis? Once you are able to do that, are you then able to go in and amend things like coupons? You could also think about other penalties for issuers like this, right? And this is quite common in the marketplace. The remedial action could be, please ensure you go out into the marketplace and buy carbon credits, right? So it's this kind of policing that, you know, unless you have the data set there, you can't even think about codifying it. So for us, making sure we have the right data set is what we've taken a long time to come through. Uh, so uh, we, we think that's going to be a continuing journey over the next year or so. And then we think in about a year's time, we'll start thinking about how to codify this, which is a very different approach from what I've seen, you know, some of the green fintechs take, which is they go in and they say, you're a real estate issuer. Let me give you a full end-to-end, -end, full tracking mechanism. It's all there. And then the issuer says, um, what if I want, you know, I'll give you one, one recent example that came across, right? Um, there was a conglomerate that we were speaking to and the conglomerate had textile manufacturing and aquaculture, go figure. So someone came to them with a great pitch for textile manufacturing and how to track supply chain finance there. But then turns out they said, actually we've been thinking of doing a green bond for our aquaculture business. Do you have anything for that? <laughs> so again, you know, we, I think some caution required there. Uh, there's a lot going on in the ESG space, obviously, but for us to you know, put our heads down and get the data set right first before thinking of codification, uh, we feel is the right approach. Also, you want to start with the right um, sector, right? Because not all sectors will be appropriate for this. So that's what we're spending our time doing on ESG. Great points, but you have to get right before you codify it. Um, now, when you are getting to the point, I mean, we're talking about obviously, to a large degree, reinventing the kind of the, the technical stack. I mean, what, what's the what's the difference you see in terms of the old issuance technology stack versus how you see that new issuance stack in the future? So I'm sure your audience is very well aware of, uh, you know, the, the new trading, uh, you know, tokenization and ledger stack. I'll actually switch gears a bit and talk a bit more about pre-issuance, right? Which is how does an issuer decide to come to the market? And, you know, the, the incumbent technology in that market is uh, WordDoc and Excel, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, you, you don't want to discount the the, um, the incumbency over there. They are very powerful incumbents, and for many good reasons, because deals are very nuanced, right? 
you get very nuanced colors on complex credit deals that you can't codify. So I think in the, we're, we're actually quite excited about a lot of the, you know, the new technologies that are being used in the pre-issuance space. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One could be, uh, you know, data extraction technologies. You know, how do you use, you know, optical character recognition or OCR to be able to extract certain clauses? So, for example, if you're a Korean issuer coming to the market and you want to see what the last five Korean issuers have done in terms of the risk factors they disclose, right? Today, it's unfortunately some poor analyst sitting on a DCM desk going around different sites, trying to get the documents in and running a control F search. We actually find extraction technologies that uh, I think have matured a fair bit given the LIBOR tra transition, which is where banks had you know, many different LIBOR uh, loans that actually have been migrated. We're looking at some use cases for that to be used for bonds. Uh, there's, for example, in the repo market, a bit removed from this conversation, in the repo market, you tend to see um, clause libraries being built out by industry bodies such as ICMA. And again, for us, a natural progression is that you know, bonds will need to have clause libraries. So we're looking at some of that. Uh, then when you look at, you know, going further downstream from there, uh, there'll be some element of document templatization, uh, better sharing and collaboration tools on a single platform, right? So one example I'll give you is, you know, circle ops, right? Uh, so essentially today, you know, auditors go and mark big red circles on financial statements. Could that be something that could be digitalized, right? And could you point that to a source? So again, a little bit removed from traditionally what I'm sure your guests talk about on, the, on, on, on your webinar, but we actually quite excited about the usage of that technology. Going further downstream, uh, you know, when we were, you know, back in 2019, we were looking at enterprise ledger wars, right? There were a number of players that were, that were in that space, each having a different niche. We think that's consolidated a fair bit, right? Uh, it's a lot easier to, you know, if not pick a single winner, then at least pick two winners in that space. Uh, so that, that gives us a lot of comfort. So I think, you know, we, in a way, it's good to be a, to have a slight late mover advantage, you know, when you're looking at downstream, because you can have your pick off the proven technologies. No doubt. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, fantastic ambitions. And it sounds like to a lot of the keys to success are standardization. And uh, obviously standards are about reaching consensus or build an ecosystem around those standards. You know, how, how is that ecosystem progressing on your side? Sure. So we, we think about the ecosystem in two ways. Um, you know, the, the old method of building a platform is, you know, launch platform, you know, do 30 page onboarding docs, and, you know, get your salespeople uh, out there, darling, you know, just going out there and reaching out to clients, right? We think that the new model is a little bit different and a very good illustration is the partnerships that we forged with 10 financial institutions as market node uh, in late September. You know, we are very open to the fact that, look, banks have a lot deeper relationships with the corporate issuers than, for example, today market node does. We want to be able to work with these banks to understand their pain points on upstream and downstream, you know, all the points I was mentioning earlier about legal documentation. And we actually, you know, we actually think the, working with these banks as partners and going to issuers is a lot more powerful than us being standalone. So that's one element of it, us looking at banks as key partners, really sponsored uh, access into you know, key demographics like the issuers. The second that we see coming up from a distribution standpoint is really uh, digital exchanges, right? 
And there's a number of them in this region that are, um, you know, generally look at either private assets or bonds. But, you know, very, if you think about Singapore as a, as a jurisdiction, you know, very technologically savvy jurisdiction, um, you know, just uh, investment savvy as well. And, uh, you know, many of them um, may not want to be served by a private banking advisor, right? So they're actually much more comfortable with the digital technology. And they actually understand the credits a lot as well, because many of them work in financial, um, in the financial landscape. So those are two models that are coming up. And, uh, you know, we do expect to be partnering with a few of these digital exchanges as we launch our post-trade products out uh, before the middle of next year. As part of the launch, what are the critical next steps for market mode? It's the A word. It's, it's purely adoption. Actually, you know, I think the, the one milestone that I'm very proud of is our ability to build a, uh, a rock star team. Uh, certainly, we, you know, when we launched market node, we were quite well known in the region. It's helped bring in some, some, key, play, some key participants, um, a lot of interest in joining market node. So that's worked out quite well. I think our critical milestone will be to deliver all of our partners what we promised and we would, right? So we've always told our banking partners that uh, by Q2 of next year, we would have the end-to-end. So whether they're looking at pre-issuance or looking at post-trade, they're looking at loans infrastructure, we would be able to serve them. So that's a critical milestone for me to achieve, which is making good on the promises that we've made uh, to all of our partners. Right. I mean, clearly market note is, very, is highly strategic for Singapore. Does that make it easier or harder to execute? <laughs> uh, it would make it no harder to execute, but actually, I think we need to zoom out a little bit. So obviously, we have a lot of um, support here within Singapore, but uh, looking at us coming out of 18 months of lockdown now, I think what will be critical for us is our ability to show that we can partner with international partners in this space. And so, for example, we're speaking to some potential partners in the EU and outside of the EU and the US. I think for us to deliver on that will be a lot more important going forward. Certainly, uh, you know, Singapore has been extremely supportive to us over the last year or so within our journey. The banks, the financial institutions, uh, the buy side, the regulators as well. But I think we need to start thinking about how we partner internationally to be part of this digital market infrastructure that is pretty much at our, door, at our doorstep. Very excited, Rihan. I mean, I, we're basically out of time. Anything, any final comments or, or, or how can people connect with you? Sure. So I will, uh, people can, it's Rehan at marketnode.com. Uh, you know, please uh, feel free to ping me on the, I think as soon as you tag me on the Metalco posts, feel free to yep. reach out to me. Always happy to speak to external partners, people who are interested in partnering with MarketNode, people who are interested in working with MarketNode and working for MarketNode. So I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Please feel free to reach out and uh, Seamus will, will add something to your show notes as well. Rihanna, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for the time and uh, good luck with the, the next steps. Yep. Yes, and we'll see you in Singapore again. next week. Thank you. Look forward to it. Yeah, Our next Metaco Talks will be in two weeks' time. Until then, wishing you all a great weekend and stay informed at uh, metaco.com slash talks. Thanks again, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>